full disclosure, I came sure. into this project uh, with a very kind of rosy idea of what music can do politically. Um, and as I did my field work and then reflected on it for years, um, I came to realize that the political side of music making, even if it did appear, um, especially publicly, to be all about uh, promoting a particular agenda that was like anti-racist, pro-Manouche, um, that not everyone actually subscribed to that and that some people were actually uh, really did, did not agree with the idea that music should be political. Welcome back to Sound Expertise for the final episode of our first season. I'm your host, Will Robin. Looking back on the past nine weeks, it seems to me that two underlying themes have emerged from my interviews with music scholars. One is identity, how when we hear music, it articulates something powerful about who made it, whether that be an individual or a larger group what motets say about religion in 17th century Prague, what reciting poems accompanied by music says about being a woman in 19th century America, what making experimental music says about the creolization of culture today. The second big theme has been how music is used, not music in its idealized form as some universal language or transcendent art, but how it functions in everyday life from the vast and unpredictable array of influences of Richard Wagner's operas, to the acoustic signifiers of timbre and 80s pop, to the function of classical music in universities, to the anthropological theorizing of music as a commodity. In this final conversation of season one, these two threads are closely intertwined. I'll be talking to my colleague and friend, Steve B. Lee, a fellow assistant professor at the University of Maryland School of Music. Her research as an ethnomusicologist focuses on the genre of jazz manouche in France. Jazz manouche is deeply valued in French culture as a tradition that has evolved from one of the country's artistic superstars, the guitarist Django Reinhardt. But it is also music created by a group of people, Romanis, who are deeply undervalued by the French state, which has a history of prejudicial policies towards ethnic and racial minorities. Steve's extensive fieldwork with Romani musicians in Alsace provides rich insight into a musical genre that is rife with complications and contradictions around how it is used and how it articulates identity. I think you'll learn a lot from this conversation. I know that I did. So you've been researching for a while now, and you're writing a book about this genre called jazz manouche. What mm-hmm. is jazz manouche? So jazz manouche uh, is a, a genre that is uh, also known in English sometimes as gypsy jazz. Um, and so it's a genre that is founded primarily on the work of a guitarist named Django Reinhardt, uh, who was one of the most famous jazz guitarists of all time, and certainly um, one of Europe's, if not Europe's, most famous uh, jazz musician. Uh, and so he uh, made music primarily from the 19, early 1930s until the early 1950s when he died um, suddenly of a, a brain hemorrhage. 
um, which is part of his kind of his legacy, his, his early death. Um, and so this genre is founded almost entirely on his recorded work. Um, he was, so he was primarily a guitarist, um, did a lot of pioneering work for uh, jazz guitar solo technique. Uh, and the setup that he had for uh, many of his ensembles was uh, somewhat unique in that it was comprised primarily of string instruments. So uh, the basis of jazz minutia as a genre is that um, it is a very string-centric genre, usually has at least two guitars, sometimes three, four, or even more in certain um, circumstances. Uh, they can be acoustic or electric, um, but the traditional jazz minutia sound is acoustic, and it's a very particular model of guitar called the Selmer-style guitar, okay. um, based on a model that uh, Django played and was a spokesperson for. Um, and then uh, in terms of other instrumentation, it often includes a violin, um, an upright bass, and then sometimes instruments like accordion and clarinet. repertoire is based primarily on uh, the music that Django played or would have been playing in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, so it's a combination of his own compositions and then usually American jazz standards. Uh, but there are also a number of newer compositions that have been incorporated into the genre standard repertoire, um, some that draw on other jazz subgenres, um, some that also draw on some traditional Romani music as well. Uh, and it follows a fairly standard uh, uh, format of uh, small group jazz improvisation. Um, and the reason that it is called jazz minouche uh, is because it is very closely associated with the minouche subgroup of Romanese uh, in France, who are also known as uh, somewhat pejoratively, pejoratively as gypsies. Um, so there's a whole history, which uh, is kind of what my book is all about, um, of the involvement of minouche individuals and communities with this music. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about who, who are the minouche what does that term represent in terms of this community of Romanis in France? Um, so the Manouche people are a subgroup of Romanis, as I've said. Um, so the Romani people uh, writ large uh, are a, a very broadly dispersed ethno-racial group whose origins lie in Northwest India. Um, by most accounts, they migrated out uh, the people whose uh, ancestors, uh, the ancestors of today's Romani people migrated out from Northwest India about a thousand years ago and spread throughout uh, the Middle East the, and primarily the European continent um, and since have also spread throughout the world. Um, and they are a group that uh, is the subject of a lot of stereotyping and scapegoating, especially in Europe and especially in Central and Eastern Europe, um, or especially over the last uh, century or so, um, and, and much more than that, of course. Um, so uh, they have traditionally practiced a number of different trades, music being one of them, uh, and have faced uh, quite a bit of uh, kind of two-sided stereotyping uh, historically. Um, they are the objects of discrimination kind of across the board because they are stereotyped as being thieving, lazy, criminals, um, up to no good. Uh, there is the 
uh, the history of migration has lent itself to a stereotype of nomadism, um, mm. the idea that all Romanis are wanderers, which today is very much not the case. The vast, vast majority of Romanis are settled in one way or another, and the main reason that they migrate is for economic reasons, as is the case with most migrants throughout the world today. Um, but on the other hand, another kind of set of stereotypes they are subject to have to do with the idea that they are inherently expressive and passionate and artistic and musical and all of these things, um, which by some accounts is seen as a good thing. That's something that um, Romanese can be valued for, but there is also the side of it that essentializes them and kind of treats them as, as worthy um, in only these capacities. Right. And of course the idea it's, it's, of course, not true as it as it is not true about any population that everyone is musically talented or right. everyone engages in this. Or that musical activity is the result of some kind of innate characteristic rather than like labor and work uh, and practice and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And they are um, Romanis across the board are very very much subject to that. Um, so Manouche people in particular, uh, they uh, are they've been in France for for centuries. Um, it's a little bit hard to delineate exactly when the Manouche subgroup, quote unquote, started, um, because there is, you know, a lot of uh, kind of a spotty historical record on who they are and how today's Manouche might identify with uh, people who would be identified as Manouche, you know, a century or two or three years ago. Um, but they've been living in France uh, since at least the 18th century, if not longer, um, are by and large French citizens. Uh, they are part of, um, they uh, generally tend to uh, be Roman Catholic, or um, there are also many who are evangelical Christian, but by and large, there's a lot of kind of religious identification um, that goes along with them. Uh, and many do speak a, the Manouche dialect of the Romani language, which is often considered to be a really defining feature of their identity, but not everyone does. So the whole idea of who gets to count as properly a Manouche or mm. not is kind of, uh, it's a big question for Manouche people. And I mean, there's a particular kind of context in France that your work deals with, which is the fact that France does not legally recognize the existence of ethnic and racial categories. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that creates this idea of like no races, but still racism or, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, on the surface. It's a very kind of contradictory thing. How can there, how how can there be racism if race is not acknowledged? Um, but I mean, uh, it's uh, it's it's a it's a very contentious uh, debate that that has unfolded in France for quite a long time. So basically, um, France uh, prides itself generally on being a republican nation, meaning that uh, all French citizens are supposed to be considered. French, regardless of whatever cultural background they come from. So if you are, if you are French and if you're going to call yourself properly French, uh, that means that your ethno-racial um, roots, your religion, none of that should matter. You should your primary mode of identification should be with the French nation. And part of that um, officially has been that uh, since around 1870, the French government has not actually collected any statistics on its ethnic, racial, or religious um, groups within the country because that's considered uh, legally to be a form of discrimination um, oh, wow. that would subvert this idea of a French nation. Um, that said, uh, this idea of what constitutes a true French identity is 
basically grounded in whiteness. Um, it is it normatizes whiteness. It's um, the the assumption that if you are French, is that you are going to be Christian, um, ideally Catholic, uh, and that you are going to be white as well. Um, so what this does is it means there's very little room for any kind of ethno-racial or, for that matter, religious minority uh, in France to actually consider their own cultural backgrounds as being part of the French nation. And that is also, um, over time, has become fodder for, um, for nationalists and especially extreme right-wing nationalists uh, to proclaim uh, France for the French, um, as, mm. they, as they often call it. Um, at the exclusion of uh, various minorities that are necessarily excluded from a sense of um, what I'm calling in the book cultural citizenship, the idea right. or the, the the state of feeling like you belong or of belonging substantially to the nation beyond just being a legal citizen, but actually feeling like you are part of the nation. You've been using this term. I want to come back to this idea of citizenship because it's the way and the way that jazz manouche kind of acts as a, as a vehicle for citizenship in some capacity, but. Um, you've been using the term ethno-race, which is a term that I wasn't familiar with until I read your work. Can you explain what you mean by that and why it's kind of a helpful phrase for what the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. So um, so ethno-race uh, is a term that I've actually borrowed from a scholar named David Theo Goldberg. Um, and to, to my surprise, it actually hasn't been taken up quite that much um, in a lot of humanities and social science uh, scholarship. Um, so I'm really trying to make a case for it. Um, but the term ethno-race for me reflects the fact that race, the, the boundaries between race, what we call race and ethnicity, are actually quite blurry. And so um, there are many situations, uh, not just in France, but elsewhere, where um, race and ethnicity can sometimes be used interchangeably, depending on what right. someone wants to say about a particular category of people. I mean, um, in the U.S., I don't even think people really understand the difference besides what they it looks like on the census and yeah. Right. And even on the census, I mean, the census itself is incredibly confusing yeah. <laughs> um, and, and not at all an accurate reflection of um, how people self-identify in the U S uh, uh, all told. Um, but uh, so it's, it's, I find this term to be especially helpful in the French context because um, race or ethnicity rather has become a kind of euphemism for race over time um, because uh race in France technically is supposed to not exist uh, because uh, it has long been debunked that there is any kind of biological basis for race. Um, this is something that is, you know, widely accepted in the social sciences and especially in, um, you know, many uh, uh, societies, including uh, French society, um, this idea that uh, or that race is a, an invention as what some call a social construction. Um, in France, the, uh, if you say anything that um, recognizes race as exist existing as a reality in the world, uh, it, even a social reality, you risk becoming labeled a racist. So in other words, if you acknowledge that race exists, that makes you a, a bad racist. So um, that doesn't mean that racism does not exist in France at all. And it doesn't mean that people don't recognize race under other guises. So ethnicity becomes the kind of... Um, you know, the better term for what people mean when they're really talking about. Mm. Um, so when I use ethno race, I'm really just trying to draw attention to the fact that ethnicity is something that's seen as a good thing and race that is seen as something kind of negative or sinister or something like that. Um, those, those are also in themselves uh, strategic, um, what, a, what a 
some linguistic anthropologists call strategically um, deployable shifters uh, that uh, basically are used one way or another to de- depending on right. what you want to say. So like in, in practice, it's more useful because it describes basically how people are actually using these kind of constructs in some mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. I want to talk about the kind of relationship between ethno-racial identity and jazz minouche, but it would be helpful, I think, first to, can you give a little bit of a sense of how you got into this project to begin with and what the scope of your fieldwork has been over many years to kind of become interested in this music and then develop relationships with your interlocutors? Absolutely. So um, so I'm trained uh, actually primarily classically as a violist and a violinist. Um, and when I was a teenager, I got interested in jazz. And if you are a, a violinist or violist and you get interested in jazz, oftentimes the first jazz music that you get kind of directed towards um, is the music of Stefan Grappelli, the violinist who collaborated with Django Reinhardt extensively. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into the music itself. Uh, and then uh, later in college, I got more interested in the kind of broader side of Romani music and Romani politics, um, so much so that uh, I ended up going to graduate school in order to study um, jazz minouche as a, a kind of a, a way to connect um, what the kind of music that I was interested in with this broader s- scene of Romani politics, um, especially uh, Romani cultural politics and ethno-racial politics. Uh, so I, I went to uh, NYU for my PhD in ethnomusicology uh, from 2010 to 2017, um, which meant that I did field work uh, in a limited capacity in France uh, the first like two or three years that I was in graduate school, um, and then went to do the kind of standard uh, year-long trip to, uh, to my field site. Uh, um, between 2013 and 2014, with a number of follow-up trips after that um, that are kind of ongoing. So um, I lived uh, both in Paris and Strasbourg, um, Strasbourg being the capital of Alsace, which is the region of France, uh, of Eastern France that borders Germany and has a history of being kind of uh, a flip-flopping between uh, German and French territory. Mm. Um, And uh, yeah, so most of my fieldwork involved a combination of the standard ethnographic methodologies of participant observation, uh, interviewing, documentation. And in my case, I also uh, was performing as a violinist and and a Mm. vocalist um, in a limited capacity. I was doing more of the other methods than anything else. Um, So I hung out a lot um, with, and in anthropology, the the term that gets used often is deep hanging out uh, with with all a very wide array of people um, primarily musicians, but also musicians' families, their friends, uh, others who were involved in some way in the jazz music scene, uh, including managers, producers, festival organizers, uh, social workers, um, audience members, all, all kinds of different people. Um, and so I was, uh, you know, taking, taking field notes, uh, recording interviews with um, somewhere around 60-something people, um, and uh, wrote my dissertation uh, based on all of that work, in addition to a lot of archival work um, that has really formed the, the basis of all of this. So I like to say that my, my work is kind of a, a really thorough combination of historical work along with contemporary work, and that that is actually really the crux um, of, of my methodology is bringing yeah. the past into the present. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how kind of ethno-racial identity works in the music that you've been looking at. So, I mean, one of the questions that you're interested in is how practitioners of this music 
refer to performances or styles as like distinctively quote unquote minutiae. Like this is minutiae. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that means for jazz minutiae performers that music does or doesn't sound minutiae, what it means to kind of take on that, that signifier? Sure. Um, so this is this question. It's a, it's a big kind of multifaceted question uh, that I tackle primarily in um, chapters two and three of my book. Uh, so in chapter two, I address the question, what is jazz minutiae? And this is a question that I asked of interlocutors constantly, um, not because I didn't actually know what it was. I had a sure. fairly good idea of what the genre was, but um, I did it more to elicit their own responses to what, what, what do they say when someone asks them that. Um, and it was also kind of a leading question because uh, one of the kind of big uh, pet peeves of a lot of jazz minouche musicians, especially minouche identifying jazz minouche musicians in France, um, is that they hate the term. Uh, mm. They think it is entirely inappropriate for what the music is and what they want the music to be. So uh, this idea that jazz minouche, there is, that there is something inherently minouche or even more broadly Romany about it, uh, to a lot of these musicians runs counter to their desires to be considered serious jazz musicians. And so they feel they, they feel that adding this kind of ethno-racial marker to it somehow uh, tethers them to some kind of imagined tradition um, that they don't necessarily feel that um, they are fully a part of. They may uh, have grown up uh, in this tradition. And I should say that um, within many Manouche communities, jazz Manouche is uh, has been for several decades a real familial tradition that gets passed down from generation to generation and is something that these communities identify strongly with. Um, and so for some musicians that ca calling it jazz minouche is uh, to them a perfect reflection of the fact that they belong to this tradition. But most jazz minouche musicians I've talked to really do want to be seen as independent, creative, visionary artists. Um, so sometimes they may call themselves jazz minouche musicians because they know that that is an identifiable genre label and that that will attract a certain kind of audience that they're looking for. Others might avoid the label as much as they can because they, as I've said, don't really want to be so strongly associated with that. Um, they might also not even publicly identify themselves as minouche because they know that the public will automatically assume that if a minouche, if there is a minouche musician, that they will be performing jazz minouche necessarily. Mm. So there's all these kinds of uh, debates that crop up, and it's a it's a constant source of debate. I don't need I didn't even need to you know ask too much for people to just start you know talking about it and um, and really trying to kind of suss it out. Um, a, a number uh, I would say not um, a majority, but definitely a, a fair number of um, musicians who would be considered to uh, be performers in the jazz and new genre or who label themselves as such as well. Uh, also very deliberately try to branch out and include uh, influences from other genres in their music as well. And so that is a more performative way of demonstrating that they don't fit into this uh, very clearly defined jazz minouche box. Um, so there's that, that part of the, of the, you know, what is, what is minouche about this music question. Um, another part, uh, which is uh, what I get into in chapter three is beyond the genre itself, there is an idea that circulates uh, that there is something specifically minouche about the very sound of this music. And in particular, right. the, the guitar sound, the way that someone literally strokes the guitar. Uh, and so uh, what I try to explore in that chapter is uh, how it is that 
ethno-racial identity can be distilled into the sound of an instrument. Um, a lot of work on race and sound as of, as of late um, has focused a lot on uh, the voice and the idea right, that right. someone's the, the sound of someone's voice can be a kind of window into their racial identity, but can also be a way to kind of play with or challenge assumptions about what a someone of a particular racial background should sound like. Uh, what I'm looking at in this chapter is uh, a little bit removed from that because it's not it's not the body that's making the sound itself. It's the instrument as as played by the body. And the way that people talk about it is they they don't necessarily always identify that it is a minutiae body that is producing that sound, but that the sound itself has something minutiae about it. Mm. And so that's um, identifying that in that chapter allows me to talk a bit about um, how certain assumptions are made about, first of all, like what is minutiae identity in and of itself? Um, but then where does this minutiae identity come from? Is it a nature or a nurture kind of thing? Right. Um, and so through talk about what is supposed to sound minutiae, uh, people do end up kind of revealing what the, where they think minutiae identity comes from and what its parameters are, whether it's something inherited or whether it's something enculturated or somewhere in between. And you also kind of talk about the way in which they kind of essentialize themselves by using, invoking this term minutiae to say, this performance is distinctively minutiae. And part of that is obviously seemingly, you know, feelings about what makes a performance good. And I guess in the tradition of Django in, in some way, mm -hmm. but I guess it's also right. This like the demand for minutiae musical labor in the marketplace means that defining yourself as minutiae also allows you to participate in one of the only things that's kind of valued about Romani culture in France. Is that kind of true as well? Yeah, exactly. So a, a really big part of, of the book um, that I should be sure not to, not to overlook in, um, as we're talking is the fact that um, that minutia identity is something that has been uh, commodified and marketed and is something very appealing to a, a broad public. And minutia people are quite aware of this and so often use the fact that minutia identity sells to their advantage. A number of non-Manouche people do this as well in kind of uh, ways that are uh, ethically quite questionable. Um, but for Manouche people themselves, uh, have being able to lay claim to a distinctively Manouche sound that can only come from a Manouche person, that is a huge asset in the music market. Uh, so regardless of whether one truly believes that there is something inalienably Manouche uh, about a sound or that um, you need to be a race and a minutiae family in order to produce a sound, it is still something that gets used. Uh, and that is uh, in some ways kind of crucial um, to sustaining a uh, music economy within minutiae communities. Mm. Um, so there's, there's a lot of kind of cynical stuff I could say about that, but, sure. um, but uh, overall it's, um, Jazz minutiae itself gets instrumentalized, forgive the pun, um, in a number of ways, uh, both to create profits, um, but also as a tool of what I call cultural activism, um, in that it is also used as a way to raise awareness about minutiae communities, um, basically for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. uh, it does involve a high degree of essentialization, um, which uh, can, can work to uh, the advantage of Manouche people in um, really powerful ways, but can also sometimes backfire. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of a, a yeah. roundabout way I mean, of getting at that. You question. point out too that like outsiders will 
celebrate Manouche music as this kind of form of cultural activism. And, and maybe some of that leaked into how you first approached this project, but you also came to realize that the Manouche musicians themselves saw these performances not as some kind of form of political activism, but as gigs to get paid and kind of have a normal musical career, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Like I actually, I, and I'll, you know, full disclosure, I came sure. into this project, uh, uh, with a very kind of rosy idea of what music can do politically. Um, and I was very convinced based on what I knew already about Jazz Manouche and about Romanies in Europe um, and in, in France in particular, uh, that music would be a, a kind of a almost unequivocal force for good in that if it could raise awareness about a group, despite all the stereotypes about Romanis being, in, you know, inherently talented performers, that it was like ultimately a good thing if, if that's what it could do. Um, and as I did my field work and then reflected on it for years, um, I came to realize that uh, the political side of music making, even if it did appear, um, especially publicly, to be all about uh, promoting a particular agenda that was like anti-racist, pro manouche um, that not everyone actually subscribed to that and that some people were actually uh, really did, did not agree with the idea that music should be political, especially when it is associated with an ethnoracial minority. Um, so a number of the musicians that I worked with uh, were actually quite skeptical, if not averse to uh, having their music be politicized. Uh, and in, in the introduction to my book, I talk about uh, one situation in which um, I've been doing research for, for a while and he knew that I had a kind of political agenda with it as well that I wanted to portray it in a certain way. Um, and then he kind of corrected me and, and said, you know, this is not how I see my music. I hope you understand. Um, and uh, other musicians did this as well, but there is a particular way in which he kind of did it. But then um, when uh, after that, I or around that time, I also observed that he was um, uh, in, taking taking gigs and basically promoting himself in a way that made it seem as though he thought his music was political mm. but really it was you know he's a working musician and he needed mm-hmm. gigs and if these gigs say like all right you gotta be pro-romanese like all right i'll put on the romany flag i'll do whatever you want me to uh just you know this is how i make my living as a musician so this kind of uh you know the the contradiction between what one says one stands for and then what one actually has to do in order to get by um, is is a very common phenomenon, I think. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's striking that if we saw that phenomenon play out with, I don't know, like a a white classical musician in the United States, we might call them out on it. But it, in, in, this, in these cases, it's also, we have to kind of account for the fact that these are members of a marginalized community who are, this is their ticket to have, have being able to be a professional musician in a way with the, like, they, they don't have a choice about whether they get to be minutiae or not um, mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, and I and I I talk about this in a way that I want to make it super clear. I'm not judging anyone for for doing this. Um, I think this is just a fact of being a musician who has, like you said, has no choice but to be manouche. And if you are finding yourself in situations where, like you know, you might not be able to get jobs because people make assumptions about your ethnic racial background, you got to do what you got to do to <laughs> make sure that you can get jobs. And even then, um, I, I should also emphasize the the line that some musicians draw between being political or not political is also a very blurry one. Um, it's not that, you know, these musicians who say they don't want their music to be political are truly hundred percent apolitical because sure. even claiming that your music is not political in and of itself is a kind of political stance. Um, 
So uh, all of all of these stances are also quite malleable, and you know, I, I really do try to account for the fact that uh, people are multifaceted, and what they say one day may not reflect what they actually do. Um, but that's not necessarily a problem because we're all human. So. Um, so there's a lot of kind of seeming contradictions that arise when people talk about what Jasmineish means to them and should mean. Um, but really, it's just part of the messiness of uh, how we how everyone self identifies. Yeah. And you, I mean, you're ultimately you talk about being interested in the way that music is used. Right. So it's like, again, you're not interested in defining Jasmineish, but you're interested in seeing how the practitioners define it. You're not interested in describing the genre as political or apolitical, but seeing how those kind of cultural negotiations are being made. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically it. I'm much more interested in the how and the why than the what mm. of Jasmine, which um, a lot of uh, there, there are, there are some people who um, are, are very devoted to the genre and just want to know more about it. But I'm trying to, um, especially as I kind of look towards an audience of Jasmine, uh, devotees and really trying to give a little bit more of the, the motivations and the backstory for why this even exists and is so popular in the first place. Right. Yeah. What were the challenges of your field work as an outsider to this community? How did you kind of get to know your interlocutors? How did you become accepted enough so that you could have hopefully honest conversations with them about this? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Especially, obviously, because this is a community that has rightfully mistrusted outsiders for a long time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And I talk I talk a bunch about that. in the book and some other writing I've done where, um, and to speak quite generally, uh, Manouche populations in general tend to have something of a distrust for um, for not all non-Manouche people by any means, but um, especially white French people um, and uh, other white Europeans, uh, in large part because of this whole history of persecution and discrimination. And there is a whole history also of um, Nazi persecution in which um, for example, Ava uh, uh, Houston, who was a anthropology doctoral student uh, working uh, under the Nazi regime, uh, befriended uh, some uh, Romani populations in Germany, primarily learned their language, earned their trust, and then sent them off to uh, be exterminated in concentration camps. Oh my camps. God! Uh, yeah, so it's it's the and there there are a lot of different stories that are similar to that of uh, Romani people being. Uh, researched by outsiders and then kind of screwed over. Um, obviously not always uh, quite so drastic as that, but still um, there, the, the cultural memory of this is still very strong. So there is oftentimes a resistance to people coming in and, and, and doing research, especially scholarly research. Um, there is a certain openness to social workers because they know that they will you know, actually benefit from that outsider's presence. But for a researcher, it's kind of like, you know, why should I care? Um, and you can say that about a, a number of other communities as well. But so that that uh, I knew from the start was going to pose a sort of um, a roadblock to to my research. So I, I approached it very delicately, and um, and it took a lot of time uh, to get into the field to develop trust um, and and to really get people talking to me in a way that I could also make it clear was uh, not going to be exploitative um, and that it would also be reciprocal in some ways. Um, so I would say it, part of my approach was doing that kind of like slow and easy thing. Um, but it also helped that I happened to meet a few key people early on who, um, you know, I had a kind of a, like a snowball effect of, of, you know, earning one person's trust who then was able to put me in touch with another person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and the fact also 
A, that I am American was actually a, a, a real bonus. And not French. And not or, French, yeah. Because <laughs> there is a certain kind of romanticization of the United States, um, especially oh, New York. And I was considered, since I came from NYU, I was considered to be a, like a New Yorker. and Related and, to jazz in that sense? Yeah, it came, uh, a lot of that came from jazz musicians. But um, just in general, I found there was kind of this... Hmm. Um, this romanticization of New York and the fact that I was not European meant that like I did, I did not have that same baggage um, as other European researchers did. So that helped. Um, the fact that I am a musician also helped because it helped to demonstrate that I like had a, a real personal interest in, in getting to know musicians and learning more about the music itself. Um, the fact that I am a woman was both a, um, a, it helped and hindered some of my research as well. Um, it helped in that um, I was in some ways seen as uh, like basically more welcome, especially among the, and I should mention, highly predominantly male uh, community of jazz niche musicians. Um, having having a female presence around was sometimes you know considered to be like a, a welcome thing and a mm-hmm. relatively non-threatening thing, I guess. Um, but it also meant that I didn't really ha- always have access uh, in ways uh, that I wanted to, especially because um, within Manouche communities, it's, uh, gender roles are very kind of strictly, um, defined. And so, um, and that's also another generalization. There's always exceptions to that. Uh, but so there, there were certain contexts that I like couldn't necessarily get into. And then, um, as, uh, virtually all, uh, female identifying ethnographers can attest to and, and others as well, there is, uh, there was also the kind of constant, um, potential for sexual harassment, uh, and all of that. And that definitely came up. Um, so that was kind of a, a, a hindrance to, to my research. But overall, I had enough uh, going for me, both in terms of how people identified me and saw me, um, and then and also how I deliberately approached building trusting relationships and, and really taking my time to do that. That allowed me uh, like a, a fairly good amount of access, I think. Yeah. Knowing the history of this kind of horrible history and, and of of the way that this community has been represented by outsiders and um, how are, what are the kind of ethical issues that you're considering when you're doing this work and that, especially now that you're finishing your book that you're weighing as you publish on this community and and for an academic audience? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's a very tough question because I I struggle very frequently, I would say with, with the ethics of, of representing a community that, um, you know, many members of whom don't want to be, uh, you know, publicized or represented in in the ways that I you know might hope. Um, so it's it has been a really long process for me of of negotiating with myself, like what what do I think uh, you know I have the right to talk about and what don't I? And then also talking to other people and making sure they're okay with me saying saying the things that I'm saying. So I basically I with all of my writing, I put myself in the shoes of the person I'm talking about or the the group I'm talking about and just really try to make sure that it is something that they would be okay with. Um, and then of course, I also ask the people whom, especially those whom I'm quoting directly, um, you know, for feedback and, uh, and really, yeah, just do my best to be as fair as possible um, in these representations. Uh, there are a, a few key interlocutors that I've had very kind of close exchanges with about what I'm writing. Um, it's been a little bit difficult uh, to do some of these exchanges because of the language barrier. Um, I am conversationally fluent in French, um, but uh, there's a certain register of uh, French academic uh, you know, writing that um, it's it's very difficult to translate what I am saying in an 
English, uh, you know, scholarly register to that French scholarly register mm. and then translate it also into more like layman's French. Um, so I've been working over the years to really try to like summarize what I'm writing to non-English speaking um, interlocutors. And I think so far it's been as successful as it's going to be. <laughs> um, but, um, but I am also working to translate parts of the book uh, so that others can read them um, and continue to offer feedback. Um, the, the whole COVID situation has made this pretty difficult because I was actually supposed to be in France right now sharing a lot of this work uh, in person with people. Um, so now I'm just trying to get as much of that done remotely. Yeah. What do you ultimately kind of hope that this work, I don't know if it, is it does for the minutiae or is it, I mean, is it serving them? Like, how do you kind of approach that question of just like what the, what the value of, is it, of, of it is for that community as well as for uh, the, the academic community? Yeah, that's also a really good question. Um, I think my my stance on this has changed over time. I, I went into this thinking that I could be a, a real asset to Manouche people, and that that would you know that I would hopefully be able to publish work in English and French that would um, you know help promote issues that are really important to Manouche people, and that um, that I could have a kind of activist role in that sense. Um, what I've found um, both in practice, but also in you know my more kind of theoretical approach to what's actually going on, is that um, <laughs> writing about and performing music does not necessarily have the kinds of concrete um, political uh, effects that one might hope it would, at, at least, but especially in this context, I would say. Um, and I have a number of parts of the books that, uh, the book that, that explores that, um, how, you know, people's hopes for what music can do for them actually end up kind of leaving them a bit left down, uh, let down. Um, and so that said, um, with the book itself, I am not, expecting it to have any like real tangible direct impact on Manoush communities, except for the fact that I am intending to um, donate whatever proceeds I get from the book, which I know uh, are <laughs> given the way academic publishing works, it's not exactly going to be lucrative, but I am going to uh, donate them to a nonprofit, a Manoush nonprofit. Um, and do my best to, uh, I think that the most important part will be translating parts of it into French so that the French public can read it. Um, mm. For, you know, as, as a scholarly book, written in English, uh, it's, it's audience in the U.S. is, or in the Anglophone world is primarily going to be other scholars um, and students. Um, so, you know, my hope is that it at least raises awareness about Romani issues in that respect, because uh, the kinds of blatant, horrifying discrimination that Romanis face, especially in Europe, is, is virtually unknown in the U.S. Um, there's still a lot of stereotypes in the U.S. about Romani people. So if it helps that, um, and if it helps also uh, Romani populations in the U.S. Uh, become a little bit better understood, even though they are different contexts, um, there, there's a very large Romani population in the U.S., uh, then, you know, I will consider that a success um, in that respect. Um, but I, I'm, still, I'm still figuring out what exactly I want this work to do concretely. So that's yeah. <laughs> kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you so much. This was a really fascinating conversation. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you having me on. Many thanks to my colleague, Steve Lee, for that rich and insightful conversation. You can visit our website, soundexpertise.org, for links to her fascinating work. Wow. We did it. 
That's a wrap on season one of Sound Expertise. I really hope you enjoyed listening to my interviews with fellow music scholars. And if you did, it's because a number of generous people helped make them possible. First up is my amazing producer, D. Edward Davis. Eddie and I have been friends for years, and despite having never worked on a podcast before, he immediately jumped on the idea of serving as editor, producer, and composer of our awesome theme music. You should definitely check out his other incredible music over at Warm Silence on SoundCloud as soon as you get a chance. I want to give a big shout out to my friend Julia Hurst for designing our awesome logo and to musicologist Andrew Delantonio for generously volunteering to create transcriptions of our episodes to make them more accessible. I'm grateful to my colleagues at the University of Maryland for organizing our colloquium series, which helped bring a couple scholars to town that I interviewed for the show. And I'm super thankful to all 11 of our guests this season for generously giving their time and sharing their expertise. Thanks to Charlie Harding of Switched on Pop for providing me with some very helpful podcasting wisdom. And many, many, many thanks to all of you who listened to the podcast and shared it with others. And an extra special shout out to our supportive listener base over on Musicology Twitter. Speaking of musicology, if you're looking for another podcast that interviews music scholars about their work to tide you over until next season of Sound Expertise, I highly recommend New Books in Music, part of the New Books Network hosted by my friend, Kristen Turner. So my work for now is over, but yours is not. If you're new to the podcast, please check out our back catalog of 11 episodes, write us a review on your platform of choice, and tell your friends to tune in. If you're a longtime listener, share what you enjoyed about the podcast on social media, or tweet at me, at SeatedOvation, for suggestions for topics or guests to cover in Season 2. Speaking of season two, I've already got a long list of potential guests and we'll start reaching out to them in the coming weeks. My hope is that our next season is bigger, tries out some new formats, definitely covers a lot of new topics, and hopefully, hopefully, we'll see launches in spring 2021. Speaking of 2021, a quick plug for myself. In February, my first book, Industry, Bang on a Can, and New Music in the Marketplace, is coming out with Oxford University Press. You can visit my website, williamrobin.com, for more information about that. And a final thanks to the two most important people in my life, my wife Emily and my son Ira. I'll tell you a little secret now about season one of Sound Expertise. With the exception of one episode, pretty much everything, interviews, intros, and outros, was all recorded prior to the summer, as that's when Ira was due to be born, and I wasn't sure how easy it was going to be to record with a newborn in the house. Well, Ira's 10 weeks old now, he's the cutest baby in the world, and perhaps most importantly, he's a pretty good sleeper, which means that I actually can record interviews in my basement. So season two is a go-ahead. Anyway, thank you all so much for listening, and see you next year for Sound Expertise Season 2.